The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Real World Real Innovation in DLBCL Perspectives on Integrating Novel Antibody Platforms into Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash ENP 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning.、Uh, welcome, everybody, to Real World Real Innovation in Diffuse RBC Lymphoma Symposium, focused on perspective on integrating novel antibody platforms into patient care in diffuse RBC Lymphoma.、Uh, my name is Greg Novakowski. I'm from Mayo Clinic, Rochester, and I'm fortunate to be joined here today by two excellent lymphoma investigators Dr. Paolo Kaimi from Cleveland Clinic. And Dr. Steven Schuster from the University of Pennsylvania. So, we'll start with a short introduction to diffuse RB cell lymphoma. And as you all know, this is a very exciting time in diffuse RB cell lymphoma where, where many new agents and cellular therapies are being rapidly introduced to patient care throughout the lines of therapy. As a reminder, diffuse RB cell lymphoma is the most common non Hodgkin's lymphoma in the US and worldwide, accounting for about 30 to 40% of all non Hodgkin's lymphomas. This accounts to approximately 18,000 cases diagnosed annually in the United States.、Uh, this malignancy has typically aggressive course with rapidly enlarging lymphadenopathy and compressive symptoms resulting from it, and frequently constitutional symptoms are present at diagnosis. If you look at the data overall, the survival rate at five years for、uh, this malignancy is about 65%. Now, for over 20 years now, the、uh, standard therapy. For frontline diffuse RB cell lymphoma has been ARCHOP. And this is based on this randomized study, which showed that addition of rituximab to CHOP chemotherapy improved both、uh, progression free and overall survival. So it was really the antibody which changed the standard therapy of、uh, diffuse RB cell lymphoma、uh, prior to introduction of the、uh, novel antibodies now. The other thing which was worth noticing from this curve that in this disease, Relapses happen early. If you see, there's this early drop off within the first year or two, and that's typical for, for diffuse RB cell lymphoma. Relapses beyond two years are quite unusual. And what you can also see that the shape of the overall survival curves、uh, mimic the、uh, shape of the event free survival or progression free survival curves, which said that historically, in the past, our therapies uh, for uh, salvage uh, therapy for Diffuse RB cell lymphoma had relatively little impact on overall survival of patients with relapsed disease. Now, adding rituximab to ARCHOP was a huge, huge advance in the field,、uh, but we all, all feel that this therapy is insufficient for many reasons. Number one, a number of patients relapse and relapse early.、Um, and there are specific subtypes of the patients who are at particularly high risk of relapse. Those would be patients with double hit lymphoma. And for that reason, they are, or triple hit lymphoma. And for that reason, those patients are frequently treated with、uh, those escalated、uh, therapies.、Uh, there's a lot of discussion about different molecular subtypes of diffuse RBC lymphoma. This didn't necessarily translate to routine clinical practice, but we do worry more about patients with ABC or non GCB subtype of diffuse RBC lymphoma as being the ones who are more likely to relapse at the higher risk of CNS relapse as well. And this is just.、Uh, um, Scholar study which looked at the outcome of patients with refractory and relapsed diffuse RB cell lymphoma after initial therapy、um, or salvage therapy 
uh, or autologous stem cell transplant. And you, is, you can see here that the median overall survival historically in this group had been quite poor, about 6.3 months. Uh, this has led to a lot of interest in developing of new therapies in uh, RABS refractory diffuse RBC lymphoma. And part of those therapies are those novel antibodies, but also cellular therapies are rapidly changing uh, the uh, therapy of relapsed refractory diffuse RBC lymphoma. And here is just a perspective from what's already there, uh, approved uh, for the use. So we have three antibody uh, uh, drug conjugate, or antibody in combination. So this would be Lancastuximab tessitrin, which targets C19, and it's approved car currently in treatment of the third line, uh, relapsed refractory diffuse RBC lymphoma. You have Platuzumab uh, vedotin combined with pendamustin rituxan, which targets C79B, again, used in the third line, occasionally a second line as well. And uh, tafacitumab plus analidomide uh, is an anti-C19 naked antibody combined with analidomide, uh, which shows significant efficacy in the second and third line and is approved in both. Uh, we also have uh, three CAR T-cell products uh, listed here. And you can see two of those are uh, now moved to the second line therapy, and all of those are available in third line. So where do those novel antibodies and cellular therapy uh, fit into this treatment uh, paradigm of diffuse RB cell lymphoma? So currently, again, the standard therapy for most of the patients is RCHOP. Uh, some of the patients with double and triple hit, as already said, will be considered for dose-escalated therapy, like dose-adjusted EPOC-R or, or Codoxem IVAC. Uh, of the, and there is a lot of attempts in adding those new antibodies to frontline therapy and improved uh, outcomes there. Uh, in relapsed refractory second, in second line, uh, there is a sort of interest in adding the antibodies um, uh, to uh, therapy, salvage therapy as well. Um, in general, those patients would follow two uh, care patterns. The fit patients would be considered for CAR T-cells if they had an early relapse uh, after uh, uh, chemoimmunotherapy, uh, or high-dose chemotherapy or stem cell transplantation, which has been traditionally used in this space. Uh, patients who are not fit can be uh, considered now outside of the clinical trial uh, for those approved antibodies, which I mentioned. So today we'll discuss how those novel antibodies work and what are the new developments in upfront setting, and how we try to move to the upfront setting. We'll then discuss the evidence leading to the antibody resurgence in relapsed refractive diffuse RBC lymphoma, uh, particularly targeting C19 and CD20, CD3 bispecific antibodies. There's been a huge development uh, there, as you probably uh, are aware. And then we'll have very uh, interesting case discussions, probably on, the, on one of the most controversial and interesting uh, topic, how to sequence those therapy, and it will be led by Dr. Schuster. And at the end, uh, we'll take uh, questions and, and answer session. So we'll start with the overview of the antibodies and then briefly touch on their use in the frontline setting. So redevelopment of those novel antibodies was possible because of our understanding of biology of malignant B cells and the surface molecules which are possible uh, to, to be targeted by those antibodies. And we took several different developmental uh, uh, pathways. Um, on this uh, diagram here, you can see various targets. Um, so CD19 is a, a target which is expressed on the majority of B cells and can be successfully targeted 
Uh, it is targeted uh, by cellular therapies, uh, which we just mentioned, but also by longastuximab, decidurin, and tafacitumab. Uh, the CD79B uh, is a target of platuzumab betotin. Again, it's a present on a B-cell uh, malignancies. Uh, uh, ROR1 is a very promising target, which is currently under investigation with the drug, antibody drug conjugate. Uh, CD30 uh, uh, targeting has been developed a while ago with brentoxamab betotin. It is a very successful therapy in T-cell lymphoma and Hodgkin's lymphoma and it's still being explored in uh, large cell lymphoma uh, tumors which express CD30. Uh, then you have a traditional target of CD20. This is the first target uh, targeted by antibodies in this lymphoma with uh, rituximab. And more recently, this target uh, showed uh, very uh, nice results with bispecific antibodies which link the effector cell uh, to CD20 by combining targeting of CD3 and CD20 and there are many more molecules uh, there in development as well. Uh, there are also a number of strategies in development which are trying to target uh, immune response molecules. Uh, PD-1 checkpoint inhibitors did not necessarily show significant activity as a single agents in uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for the most. However, there's still a lot of interest in investigation of those agents combined with other therapies, uh, including inhibitors of TIM3 and CD, uh, uh, CD137. Uh, you can also target other cells in microenvironment, and SERP-alpha, or do not eat me signal uh, inhibitors, are being in development uh, as well. And this is building on this premise that we can actually activate immune response and macrophage response against the tumor. So let's look closer on a couple of those, and this will be just examples how how they work, and we'll start from tafacitumab, uh, which is a naked FC-enhanced anti-C19 antibody. So this antibody was really engineered to have increased affinity to uh, CD19, uh, increased ADCC and ADCP, uh, and by this increased activity um, binding to C19, it actually does show in preclinical studies also a better induction of direct cell death. Uh, you can see that the factor cells uh, in the mechanism of action are natural killer cells, uh, as well as macrophages through the FC receptors. Now, the antibody by itself showed about 30, uh, 25 to 30% response rate, but what really made this therapy stand out is a combination with lenalidomide. And uh, a lot of you who are familiar with the imits know that the imits tend to synergize uh, by uh, working on immune environment uh, with the antibodies. This is certainly true about combination of rituximab with uh, lenalidomide, known as R2. And here uh, we see a combination of lenalidomide with uh, 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 tafacitumab, which really in dramatically increased response rate and durability of responses in diffuse large B cell lymphoma. Another example of uh, developed antibodies, lancastuximab tesiturin. Um, here, the, this is the antibody to drug conjugate. Again, there are uh, many more in development, and uh, platuzumab bedotin is already uh, used as well. Uh, the concept here is that the antibody has a payload of the active uh, uh, substance. Uh, in case of uh, alonkastuximab, this is tacitrin, which is the DNA cross-linking agent. And when the antibody binds to the tumor, it gets internalized, and then the uh, uh, drug gets released within the cells, causing the cell death. 
So this is a magic bullet of chemotherapy delivered directly to the cells. And certainly those antibody drug conjugates were shown to be very promising way of uh, developing targeted therapy uh, in diffuser B-cell lymphoma and other malignancies as well. Finally, we have a number of uh, bispecific uh, antibodies in development. None of those are uh, approved yet by FDA in US, uh, but a lot of us believe that those therapies are coming to the clinic relatively quickly. And here again, the concept is that you're bringing a factor cell, typically T cell, uh, by binding to or the antibody binding to CD3 receptor and T cells to target cells, uh, malignant B cell, but binding to CD20. Uh, there are other antibodies in development as well, targeting uh, different surface molecules on um, B cells. Uh, here you have an example of uh, uh, Mosun, which is uh, uh, being developed in diffuse cell B cell lymphoma and uh, other uh, B cell non Hodgkin's lymphomas. Um, another example of a bispecific uh, uh, antibody is uh, Epgoritib, Tamab. Uh, uh, which is, uh, again, bispecific antibody against uh, CD3 receptor and CD20, so very similar uh, mechanism of action. Um, it is developed specifically to have those high potency at the lower doses uh, in the uh, uh, presence of uh, partial CD20 uh, therapy. So it's uh, uh, really uh, uh, engineering uh, of the therapy which uses the immune system to attack tumor directly uh, and it's available off-shelf uh, in contrast to some of the cellular therapies. So, how does it uh, affect our current therapies uh, in diffuser B-cell lymphoma? We already discussed that chemoimmunotherapy remains standard in the frontline setting, and uh, some one of the antibody drug conjugate could be moving there. I'll, we'll talk about this in a minute. Um, in uh, patients with uh, poor um, ejection fraction, uh, in lymphoma with, with uh, cardiomyopathy, we can use uh, other chemotherapies, which, which are typically replacing doxycycline with uh, uh, other agents. And the very challenging population to treat are very frail patients, uh, 80 and older with frequent uh, comorbidities. And uh, traditionally, we've been using uh, uh, chemoimmunotherapy in this setting, uh, often with uh, uh, modest results. Some of those patients could not tolerate actually chemotherapy. And there are some exciting developments moving antibodies uh, to the first-line therapy as well. Uh, it is worth mentioning that lenalidomide actually was studied as a maintenance after chemoimmunotherapy by our, by our colleagues uh, from uh, France. And this has shown actually improvement in uh, progression-free survival um, after chemoimmunotherapy. Uh, in terms of the second-line recommendations, uh, with, with the intent to treatment, which will be typically relapsed more than a year after chemoimmunotherapy, uh, we typically would salvage those patients with intensive chemotherapy, uh, followed by high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell transplantation. You can see some of the chemotherapy uh, choices uh, here. For patients which we consider to have refractory disease, which be relapsed within 12 uh, months, um, the uh, treatment with uh, CAR T-cell therapy, both with AxiCell and NisoCell, uh, became a, a standard in this setting based on the data from randomized studies. Uh, the, there is a huge unmet need of the effective bridging therapy. Uh, that's something which uh, Dr. Schuster frequently highlights in his talk, uh, how we effectively treat the patients to stabilize their tumor, which is often rapidly progressive before um, uh, 
uh, treatment with CAR T cells, uh, and there are some options which you see listed uh, here as well. And patients who are not transplant candidates are still candidates for, uh, for typical uh, salvage uh, uh, chemotherapy, usually gemcitabine or uh, platinum-based, as well as a uh, combination of tafacitumab and alidomide and uh, Polabr. Allogeneic stem cell transplantation can be used in selective patients. I must say, nowadays with the CAR T cell therapy, I cannot remember when was the last time I referred somebody for allogeneic uh, stem cell transplantation. And all the agents which I mentioned are available in the third line setting as well, uh, including for the patients who relapse after CAR T cell therapy, which is uh, still a significant uh, problem. Which uh, brings us to this uh, current landscape. Again, after chemotherapy, if you're transplant um, eligible and fit, uh, you'd be considered for transplant if you have this late relapse versus uh, CAR T cell therapy if it's uh, late relapse and those antibody and other agents which you have shown in those boxes uh, are available for those patients as well. So really we see very rapid evolution of therapy of the fusor B7 pharma in the last uh, couple of years. So, is there a role for bringing some of those agents to frontline therapy of diffuser B cell lymphoma? And uh, we will focus on um, update on a Polaric study and how addition of platuzumab bedotin affects the activity of uh, chemotherapy in frontline setting. I will briefly discuss a frontline study, uh, which is currently ongoing, which has a very interesting design, and then discuss some um, of the other abstracts here at ASH. Um, which are trying to use different strategy of uh, treatment in frontline setting. So this is designed of the Polarx study. Uh, so Polarx study uh, randomized adult patients with IPI 2 to 5, so kind of higher risk patients, uh, to two arms. One was platuzumab bedotin, given at the dose and schedule shown here, uh, in combination with RCHP. Um, RCHP is chopped without incristin. And the reason for this is um, that vincristin uh, could be, in addition to platuzumab vedotin, could be inducing uh, uh, neuropathy. And this was compared to standard therapy with RCHOP. And uh, you can see the endpoint in the primary endpoint in the study was progression-free survival, which is typically a standard endpoint in the setting. And uh, those are the high-level results. You can see that addition of um, Platuzumab bedotin uh, to frontline chemotherapy resulted in improvement in progression-free survival. If you look at those curves, there are two interesting observations. Number one, the separation occurs relatively uh, late, uh, which for me tells me that maybe there is less impact on, on primary refractory disease, uh, but this benefit in progression-free survival appears to be uh, occurring later on. The other interesting uh, finding looking at the overall survival curve is that you, you do not see a difference in overall survival. And overall, uh, the outcomes are actually excellent uh, for the patients on the study, which is something which we see across studies in diffuser B cell lymphoma in a frontline setting for different reasons, including patient selection for performance status and the tempo of the disease. Patients who do enter clinical studies uh, do better than uh, historically controls in diffuser B cell lymphoma, and we also see it uh, in this uh, study. Now, if you look at the absolute risk reduction, um, uh, it is relatively small, but if you look at the relative risk reduction, it corresponds to about 27% uh, 
uh, risk reduction of a progression or death. So it's a quite a significant gain uh, in uh, control of the disease with platuzumab vedotin. So what's the cost of this therapy in terms of the toxicity? Uh, you can see that the uh, toxicity actually in both arms was very uh, similar. Um, uh, there was a slightly higher incidence of uh, neutropenia, as you would expect it, uh, with uh, a higher intensity uh, uh, therapy. Peripheral neuropathy, which a lot of people worried about, was actually not significantly different. And overall, the side effect profile was very similar. Uh, there was also uh, uh, quality of life uh, 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 performing the study, and it will be presented at this year uh, ASH by Jonathan Friedberg. And uh, just the big picture of those results uh, really showed no difference in the uh, uh, symptom uh, uh, score uh, between the patients receiving TAP and both arms, uh, which is consistent with this very similar uh, toxicity profile of both arms as well. Uh, you can also see that the patient perception of their condition is improving over time, which we typically see in those malignancies which are responsive to therapy. Now, Another uh, attempt to improve on RCHOP therapy was um, addition of uh, lenalidomide uh, to RCHOP. And there were actually two studies. Uh, one study called ROBUST, which I'm not showing you here, which actually showed no benefit in terms of the progression-free survival. Uh, the other one was a randomized phase two study called E1412, uh, conducted by US uh, intergroup uh, with uh, ECOC leadership. And in this study, there was some signal that possibly addition of lenalidomide could be uh, improving uh, on RCHOP. And uh, this data, along with the data of lenalidomide with uh, tafacitumab in an abstractory setting, led to design of uh, frontline studies of this doublet of the antibody and the uh, lenalidomide in a frontline setting. Uh, so these are, these are results from the uh, first mind study. Uh, the update of the study we presented at this meeting as well. And uh, in the study, um, RCHOP was combined with uh, tafacitumab or uh, tafacitumab plus lenalidomide, so R squared chop backbone plus uh, tafacitumab. And um, the important finding in the study was that this combination was feasible and uh, uh, there was an increased hematological toxicity as we'd expect with uh, lenalidomide. But there was really no increase in neutropenia, uh, and patients were able to complete uh, this uh, therapy. Those early results led to development of currently ongoing frontline study, uh, which is a large randomized phase three study in patients with newly diagnosed diffuse RP cell lymphoma. And you can see study design here. So what's a couple of interesting aspects of the design. First, the study focuses on high-risk patients, so IPI 3 to 5. Uh, the other interesting thing is that the, we had shown in the past that patients who could wait a long time before starting um, uh, chemotherapy because they had relatively little symptoms and slowly progressive disease had significantly better outcome than patients with rapidly progressive disease. Uh, that's typical how life goes. If you have a patient coming on Friday night with rapidly progressive adenopathy, they go to the hospital and they frequently don't go on the clinical studies. Um, and then patients who can sometimes wait for weeks or even months are the ones who frequently enter clinical study. And as you've seen in an example from the Polarex study, it does appear to be affecting the outcome of the studies that the control arm is actually overperforming. 
So uh, what was being done in this study, what we are doing in this study, is actually uh, we require the diagnosis to treatment interval is no more than 28 days. And to my knowledge, this is the first study which is really trying to capture those rapid progressors um, uh, early on and uh, capture them in the study. Uh, those patients that are randomized to r squared chop backbone, just like in E1412 plus uh, tafacitumab versus uh, r chop and placebo, and the endpoint just... Uh, uh, like in other studies, the progression-free survival. The study is ongoing and uh, hopefully will be completed uh, next year. So outside of adding those novel agents to chemotherapy backbone, are there any other ways of developing frontline therapies? Uh, there, there are a number of patients, which we mentioned at the beginning, which are unfit or frail, and uh, they cannot really be treated with chemotherapy or just decline chemotherapy up front uh, because of fear of potential side effects um, uh, because of this fraulet and comorbidities. And here we have LOTUS-9 study, which has a very interesting design of combination of LONCA with uh, rituximab in previously untreated diffuser PCR lymphoma. And you can see here there are two cohorts of patients. It's a relatively small study targeting uh, 40 patients per arm uh, one cohort is uh, just focused on unfit patients uh, over 80, and the other cohort is focused on patients with uh, cardiac, cardiac comorbidity as well. Uh, the endpoints in the study is actually CR rate, which in diffuser B-cell lymphoma after therapy is uh, meaningful. And you can see that in a design, the initial tr uh, treatment plan is for four cycles, but if patients are in PR, uh, you can continue to up to six cycles of therapy. So it's going to be a very interesting study to observe um, and, and see the results because it's moving away a little bit from, from this paradigm of using always chemotherapy backbone uh, in a development um, up front in a patient population who is not really eligible for this therapy. The other strategy to do that, and the update uh, on the study will be presented at uh, this meeting, uh, is uh, trying to one of the bispecific antibodies, which really show very nice um, uh, results, in addition to uh, RCHOP uh, chemotherapy. And uh, here we have a study of uh, uh, glofitamab added to RCHOP in a frontline setting. Uh, the study is very early on, uh, but the overall response rate of uh, over 90% and uh, very high uh, CR rate is definitely very, uh, very promising. We'll have to see how the time-dependent endpoints, progression-free survival and overall survival will look in this study. Uh, what's also uh, uh, worth noticing that uh, uh, cytokine release syndrome is relatively rare uh, in this uh, frontline use with chemotherapy, and uh, the grade three, which is the severe one, is actually uh, was not reported, which again shows visibility of those bispecific combinations with chemotherapy in frontline setting. Uh, the other bispecific antibodies are also being used as a monotherapy in elderly unfit patients. So this is a little bit like the LOTUS-9 uh, concept, uh, which, which we just discussed, but now looking at the bispecific antibody. And uh, Mosin uh, was uh, uh, studied uh, in this setting, and at this year, ASH, uh, we'll see a follow-up uh, uh, abstract reporting, uh, extended follow-up on those patients. Um, the initial response rates were are about approximately 50% in this uh, study. So would it stand alone or would it require additional uh, agents to enhance these response rates? Uh, and how durable they are uh, will be something which we'll have to uh, watch very closely. 
So I'll finish with some uh, take-home uh, uh, messages on those novel antibodies and potential to moving to frontline therapy. First, that frontline therapy in diffuse obesity lymphoma is still an unmet need. Uh, there is still a, clearly, even with advances of uh, polatuzumab, there's still a lot of room for improvement, particularly for those patients with rapidly progressive disease, uh, double or triple head lymphoma, and uh, different high-risk molecular subtypes. Polatuzumab vitotin plus RCHP definitely improved progression through survival. Somewhat surprisingly, this was not followed by improvement overall survival, but I think it could be explained by this late separation of progression through survival um, and overall very good results uh, in terms of the overall survival for the patients in this study. Uh, the combinations of novel antibodies and bispecific antibodies with ARTROP are very promising, and we'll see a whole wave of early and randomized studies in the setting. And I will urge you to enroll your patients with the newly diagnosed diffuse fissile lymphoma in those studies. Uh, the one which is um, interesting and ongoing, which we'll probably read uh, uh, fairly soon, is the uh, frontline design because it's actually adding doublet on the top of traditional chemotherapy rather than traditional way of adding one agent at a time. So uh, in the past, we used to call it XRTROP. Now we have XYRTROP, if you would. And I think what's also very important about those developments with the therapies with, with uh, antibodies and uh, antibody drug conjugated by specific antibodies, that so far, they appear to be molecular subtype of diffuse obesity lymphoma agnostic. So in the RAPS refractory setting, a lot of those responses are seen across molecular subtypes of diffuse cell lymphoma, which I think makes a development of those drugs in early, early therapy much easier. Um, in the past, when we tried to develop some of the uh, molecularly targeted uh, therapies up front, uh, there's always an issue of uh, real-time molecular classification and identification of the patients with different molecular clusters or subtypes. Um, and with those agnostic therapies, uh, this is currently not an issue. It may emerge later on if we find that some of the subtypes are not benefiting from those additional liver therapies, uh, but as of now, the evidence is showing uh, activity uh, broadly across various subtypes. Again, thank you very much for your attention. I'll uh, pass it now to Dr. Kaimi. Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, so the main thing is whether we can challenge the frontline ARTROP with the new, new drugs, with the, with the results of Polaris, as well as the this upcoming results of uh, the addition of Tafalen and frontline to, to CHOP, and whether the addition of bispecifics can also challenge uh, the, the standards of, of, of frontline therapy. But in addition, whether we can use non-chemotherapy-based regimens for patients who are most frail. The additional area where we're seeing significant changes, I would say, is second line and subsequent therapies. I think we already have CAR-Ts as part of the standard approach, particularly for patients who are refractory or early relapsed after uh, uh, frontline therapy with an anticyclic chemotherapy. Um, but we'll see that as we add new agents, um, I'm going to have more and more alternatives. I think we're switching again from like a linear-based of approach to where you're going to RCHOP, second-line therapy, transplant, to having you know, a multitude of different alternatives. You're really using it as a matrix where you're having two or three alternatives when you start, two or three alternatives when you, when you have a second line and more on the third line. So I think it will, this will make our decisions uh, in treatment much more complex, but also much better for patients. And you'll see here, as we talked about, we have you know, multiple anti-CD19 and targeting drugs, multiple new immunotherapies. So what is the evidence supporting the novel antibodies in relapse refractory diffuse starch B-cell lymphoma? 
And we'll start with L-MIND. Uh, L-MIND was a trial of tafacitumab and lenalidomide in patients with refractory or, re or relapsed refusage basal lymphoma, but were not eligible for stem cell transplant. And they had received one to three prior lines of therapy. They were either not eligible because of age or comorbidities. Um, it did not include patients with primary refractory disease, um, and particularly after a specific amendment in terms of time from, the, uh, from relapse. The treatment uh, on the single-arm phase two trial was tafacitamab, which was given on the first few cycles on a much frequent, on a frequent basis, day one, eight, 15, and 22 on the first cycle. And then um, on cycles one and three, continue on that four weekly, four weekly doses. And then from cycles four to 12, it was given every uh, two weeks when lenalidomide was given throughout the whole first year as well from days one to 21 of each four-week cycle. Once the first year, patients who were on stable disease or better continued on to tafacitumab and were treated um, in an indefinite basis until progression. Um, the primary endpoint for the study was overall response rate with secondary endpoints of progression-free survival and durational response, which we'll see was something observed significantly in this trial. And you'll see here that the overall response rate, why we used a pointer trying to go through this kind of complex table, but the overall response rate uh, for the whole group was 57.5% um, with 40% uh, complete response rate for the whole group. But also if you see patients who have one parallel of therapy, the complete response rate is close to 50%. The median duration of response, again, for the whole group, 43.9 months at the time of report with a median progression for survival of close to a year. You see here the curve showing how the outcomes of patients at three years of patients that had a complete response were significantly uh, impressive for, for a population of patients with relapse if you start visual lymphoma. And here again, you see in the in the swimmer in the swimmer plot that we're advancing here, there you can see that set multiple patients are now more than four years out. Some continued in treatment, some even have not continued treatment and continue with disease, uh, disease control. So again, a very active agent for patients with, uh, with relapse refractory diffusive visual lymphoma. Uh, they suggest that patients can continue in prolonged remission uh, with survivals of five years or more. Uh, and again, the other important thing is because we're getting one year of lenalidomide and then continued on the antibody uh, as a single agent, the adverse events that you'll see will be more concentrated on the first year and patients, once they continue on monotherapy, can tolerate the, the, the treatment much better. It is somewhat complex to give, uh, particularly in the first few months. As, as we talked already, they have five doses on the first few weeks of treatment of tafacit uh, of Tafacitumab with the lenalidomide on days 1 to 21. On cycles 2 and 3, they also get four weekly doses of tafacitumab continued on lenalidomide, and then they continue on the two weekly doses of tafacitumab. So it will require for those patients to continue to come uh, on the first few months on a, on a frequent basis. But then once monothera monotherapy is established, they can continue every two weeks. In terms of adverse events, we see the hematologic toxicity was a common adverse event in about 50% of patients, um, as well as, and, and you'll see that uh, neutropenia and anemia were, were also 
in about a third of patients, but great and high-grade toxicities were not that common except for neutropenia. And probably this was also an effect of the, of the use of the, the additional lalidomide. And not very frequent infections, you see 12% of everyone neutropenia. The, the incidence of severity of, again, uh, treatment of emerging adverse events was much lower once you went, moved to monotherapy. So much better tolerated once you're giving the single-agent antibody. Well, the, Dr. Nowakowski presented last year the comparison and propensity risk score based trial comparison with the outcomes of patients who received tafacitamid lenalidomide with those who, those who received treatments um, that are approved either by our NCCN or the ESMO guidelines. What was interesting from this, this study was that comparable patients receiving tafacitamid lenalidomide uh, compared with those who received pulatuzumab. Uh, and benamastin rituximab were significantly better for those who, who had tafalen. The same uh, when the comparison was between tafalen and R squared, uh, and with comparable progression-free survival for patients who, uh, survival for patients who received a tafalen and CAR T. So again, this suggests that tafalen is a very active regimen. Although I think here with the propensity scores, so there's somewhat of a selection of the patients to match them uh, by their risk. Now, can you use it before or after CAR-T? And I think uh, here's a case report. Uh, there's, there's some uh, preclinical data that suggests that sequential tafacitamab and CAR-T, um, that the use of tafacitamab prior to CAR-T does not inhibit the anti-tumor activity of the CAR, but rather promotes it in xenograft models. And there's one case report where this is a patient that received dose-adjusted RE book, uh, achieved complete remission, uh, then a couple years later, received RIs, uh, received three cycles, achieved complete remission. Then two years later, had a, had a, uh, a relapse again, uh, participated in an L-mind, uh, had tafacitamide, lenalidomide times six, seven cycles, did not achieve response, uh, but went on to have stable disease, um, was salvaged again with RGMOX, probably in the beginning of the following year of treatment, um, and subsequently was able to, to receive axis cell achieving a complete remission. Now, this patient was able to achieve a complete remission despite having received a mind to see that having a sequential CD19 agent did not preclude the activity of the CAR-Ts. Uh, at, at the end, this patient developed an acute leukemia. There was no relapse of the lymphoma and died from the myeloid disease. So I think this suggests, at least in one case, that uh, tafacitumab did not affect the, the, the activity of the CAR T cell therapy. Uh, and it would be important when you're having to retreat somebody with a, with a CAR T of making sure that there's CD19 expression. And that CD19 expression studied in, in patients receiving tafacitumab shows that patients achieving different responses to tafacitumab, either uh, progression, uh, uh, partial response, progressive disease, or stable disease, or complete remission, had different levels of CD19 expression, but it was consistently detected by immunohistochemistry. And this suggests that the treatment with tafacitumab does not uh, lead to significant loss of the antigen. And there, you can continue to be treated with, with CD19 drugs. Now, the practical summary for tafacitamide lenalidomide and the, and the take-home points was certainly an option for patients who are transplant ineligible, um, or who have relapsed after the initial therapy for diffuse like visceral lymphoma. I think it's probably very important, as we'll see, there's an, uh, an, uh, an abstract presented by Dr. Qualls, 
from MS for Memorial, who is showing how patients who have uh, relapse with the first line can have very good responses. Um, and, and this is a real-world analysis, and also showing that patients who have been treated with CAR-Ts also can have responses with Tafalen. Uh, the scheduling for Tafalen is somewhat complex. It should be considered in patients who are relatively frail and, may, and, and cannot get uh, participate in transplant. It requires a frequent visit for the first two months, uh, and you, can, you continue on the Tafacitumab beyond the 12 months indefinitely. The safety profile with initial hematolo hematologic toxicity definitely eases off after the second year, uh, and the responders have a real chance of having long-term disease control. Moving on to Lonkastuximab, the LOTIS-2 trial studied Lonkastuximab and relapse refractory diffuse diffuse lymphoma after two or more lines of therapy. Um, Lonkastuximab, as we saw, is an antibody drug immunoconjugate. It's given on a different basis. You, you actually get two, two loading doses uh, separated over three weeks, and then you continue uh, at half dose of 75 micrograms per kilo beyond two cycles. And the treatment is up for up to a year. Uh, on the trial, uh, the follow-up continued every 12 weeks up to three years, but there was no treatment on the trial. Um, this trial included 145 patients with relapse refractory diffuse HB with more than two lines of therapy. Uh, two or more, the overall response rate, as you see in the overall population, was 48%, uh, and the median duration of response uh, was 10.25 months, and about 13 months for patients in complete remission. And you see here that for the whole population, the response was 48%, and it wasn't really that different for the, in terms of overall response for those of different risk. Um, this was a very small group of, uh, of high-grade B-cell lymphoma with double head. The overall response rate was the same, and it happened that all of them had complete remission, but I think it's probably similar to, to that of all diffuse rh B-cell lymphoma. Um, again, we said 48% uh, overall response, the median duration, um, and the complete remission of about 25 or 24%. Um, and again, the longer follow-up after about uh, 18 months, we saw uh, the, the median duration response was 13.7 months. And here you see this is the analysis of um, high-risk populations. And in general, the statistics either um, was not statistically significantly different, uh, though the outcomes were double or triple hit, those of advanced age, patients who had refractory disease to frontline therapy, or those who had transformed uh, lymphoma uh, versus de novo diffuse repeated lymphoma. So in general, um, again, treat uh, subtype agnostic, risk agnostic. Um, this trial included patients of all risk groups who intended to, intended to have responses that were comparable among all the disease groups. Also, you see here the progression-free survival, always better for those who had complete remission with the duration of response for responders of about 13 months that we saw earlier. And compared with, a, with the organ not comparing trial, but in terms of looking at progression-free survival, this is a high-risk population, uh, with more, uh, more heavily pretreated than we see in Tafalen, and also included refractory patients. Now, it's safe, but it has certain, certain uh, uh, adverse events that have to be noted. It has some hematologic toxicity. Um, thrombocytopenia was not as frequent. The, remarkably, there's a few patients that develop gamma glutamyl transferase increases without 
increases in transaminases or subsequent liver damage, but it's something that needs to be monitored. Patients were on the trial were discontinued because of GDT increases, but we haven't seen significant uh, liver toxicity. There's other safety, safety events that need to be observed, particularly the, the fluid retention and edema. Patients need to be weighed frequently uh, and the risk of photosensitivity with the stroke. 57 and 39% of patients uh, had serious adverse events. The rate of discontinuation, though, was, some, was comparable to those discontinuation rates on, in tafacitamide and lindamide uh, and in uh, palatuzumab, bendamacin, rituximab. Notice three is it's a study that is ongoing that is looking at a combination of longcastuximab with uh, with the brutinib. Um, it it's done in um, diffuse therapy lymphoma in, in both in germinal centered and non-germinal centered diffuse therapy lymphoma. The, the 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 treatment schedule is somewhat different because uh, ibrutinib is continuous, um, but longcastuximab is given two cycles on, then two cycles off, and then two cycles on. So the patients have an intermittent treatment with longcastuximab, and the response, the overall response was 60, 50, close to 60%, but 77% in germinal center uh, diffuse therapy lymphoma, although with very small numbers, uh, and the protocols being amended um, to be able to do continuous longcastuximab because the tolerability uh, allowed at least on this on this trial, so they're looking at whether continuous treatment can can lead to better better responses. Lotus five, we'll see next, is a trial that is planned that is already on the safety phase. It's enrolling patients. It's comparing longcastuximab combined with rituximab uh, versus argemox or salvage for patients who have relapse refractory diffuse HPC lymphoma. Uh, the dosing is similar, again, 150 times two cycles, and then uh, 75 continued up to six additional cycles, uh, and patients are, are going to continue to be followed um, uh, after end of treatment uh, for up to, I think, four years. And this trial is enrolling actively, and it's already kind of come out of its safety phase for, um, for longcastuximab-rituximab combination. Now, when you prescribe Lonca, there are certain considerations uh, to avoid uh, excessive fluid retention. Premedication with steroids helps. Um, we, we do it at day minus one, one and two with those of dexamethasone, giving them orally at home and then uh, for the day off and day after. If the patient skips the dose on day minus one, you can give it IV. Um, you have to monitor their GGT. We don't really know, again, the clinical significance. Definitely monitoring the edema and effusions. Patients have, have pleural effusions, ascites. I've seen facial uh, fluid retention. And the use of diuretics can help, um, but it's not always consistent. And in general, uh, the combination of spironolactone and loop diuretics or something uh, that it's worked as, uh, best. Photosensitivity is definitely, definitely an issue. Uh, it's it's both to UVA and UVB, so patients can get uh, sunburns through glass. Uh, you have to be monitoring the patients, and they usually recommend patients to cover themselves, stay in the shade, and use sunblock as much as they can. And there is a there is a long-term rash that can happen that is independent to the photosensitivity. Those are things to consider, particularly with patients' occupations, or uh, some patients really like to be in the sun for whom this may not be an ideal drug. In general, though, it can be prevented with avoidance of of direct sun exposure. Now moving on to biospecifics, um, this is an exciting new uh, class of drugs that is upcoming 
Um, we'll start here with uh, a presentation by Dr. Schuster from a couple of years ago, the plenary session at ASH, uh, showing the activity of musunetuzumab in wheel of refractory lymphomas. It included aggressive uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and these are patients that were heavily pretreated. And you see there's a large phase one study that included more than 100 aggressive uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma with response rates, again, with a heavily pretreated high-risk patient population of a complete response rate of 20% and overall response of 37.8%. You know, a significant proportion of patients were refractory with prior therapy, including rituximab or transplant. Again, achieving complete responses and, and, and suggesting already that this class of drugs is active for, uh, for treatment of, uh, of aggressive lymphomas. And you see here the swimmer plot showing many patients continuing the treatment at the time of report. The updated uh, results of the trial that were published earlier uh, this year with uh, Dr. Badia's first uh, author showed that um, the overall response rate was 34.9%, complete response rate again close to 20%, um, with a significant tolerability when there's a step-up dosing. We saw so cytokine release syndrome can occur with this class of agents, and the step-up step dosing allows for a manageable safety profile and allows for patients to stay on the drug. Classically, the, toxicity, the CRS happens on the first few cycles. Um, you see the overall response rate, 349 um, The median duration response, 22.8 months. Again, impressive for, for this patient population with, again, about a third of patients having cytokine release syndrome, but mostly low-grade, with a very small percentage of patients having grade 3 and mostly confined to the early uh, phases of treatment. Now, glofitamab is another uh, bispecific antibody. It has a different structure. It's a 2 to one uh, attachment of CD20 and CD3. Um, this bivalency... Um, uh, allows for potential exposure to another anti-CD20 drug, uh, which may help for both uh, tolerability in terms of decreasing CRS, as well as potentially helping with efficacy. Um, the phase one study evaluated uh, glofitamab in Willis refractory non-Hodgkin lymphoma with very good responses across different histologic subtypes, including diffuse rgp lymphoma and transformed follicular lymphoma. We'll see here, again, Another large phase one study, um, but included 73 diffuse rt cell lymphoma patients. Overall response rates was a little bit higher than we saw in the previous trial. Again, comparing trials, not necessarily appropriate, but again, 41% overall response rate, complete response rate of 28%. And at the higher doses, you see responses close to 55% for overall response rate and 42%. With the transformed follicular lymphoma, the rates were somewhat higher as well, close to over 60%, and all of them were complete responses. In all cohorts here, you'll see that the complete remission close to 40%, and the overall response rate close to, close to 50%, but the median duration follow-up of 12 months, with responses that happened relatively early on the course of treatment. So again, another monoclonal and uh, bispecific antibody showing activity in uh, real refractory non-Hodgkin transformer aggressive lymphoma. And the tolerability seems to be comparable. Again, cytokine release syndrome is common, but it tends to be rarely of high grade, um, with some hematologic toxicity in these patients are usually fairly highly treated. Um, cytokine release syndrome, again, usually contained on the first few doses and of grade one or two. 
and the usually discontinuation related to adverse events is not a common event. In terms of epcoritumab um, is yet another uh, bispecific antibody, has a specific quality that can be administered subcutaneously, has been studied subcutaneously for, uh, for since conception. Um, this is a study that included 73 patients with relapse or refractory uh, diffuse no, non-Hodgkin lymphoma that included diffuse lymphoma using the overall response rate um, for the whole population, approximately 60%, uh, and, on, and the complete responses over 30%, 30 to 40%, and in the higher doses, uh, although very small, close to 100%. <coughs> Here you see that the adverse events, again, cytokine release syndrome is a common event, but most of them, if not all, uh, of lower grade, um, very small numbers of neurological toxicities and tumor lysis syndrome in only a few patients. There's no correlation uh, between the instance of CRS and the and depcoritamab dose, and you can see pro, and that's also because the earlier dosing, uh, depending on the, also is affected by the, by the tumor burden. Here's the waterfall plot, and after a median follow-up of 10.7 months, the overall response was 63%, with 39% uh, complete remission, uh, with median progression for survival of 4.4 months, but again, very short follow-up. And the median PFS for patients in complete remission not reached. So the take-home points for bispecific antibodies, again, this is a very highly anticipated drug class we're all expecting. I think one of the complexities of this will be that there's multiple agents in development. Hopefully, multiple agents will be approved, uh, and we'll have to kind of make uh, an effort to be able to tell one from the other with the different characteristics, and maybe some may be more active in certain disease type, subtypes. Certainly, in diffuse starch basal lymphoma, is very active. I think as a class, the UC overall responses 50 to 60 percent, complete remission 30 to 40 percent is in the relapse setting. Cytokine release syndrome requires a dose ramp up and management that will require some learning curve, uh, learning curve for, for physicians who are not used to taking care of this. But in general, I think most of us are getting very comfortable with infusion reactions on this type of uh, adverse events. There, there appear to be a potentially combinable class of drugs. And again, as I said, multiple products. I think um, distinguishing them one from the other will be important. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paolo. Well, I invite Dr. Schuster. Thanks, Greg. I'd like to thank everybody for attending this morning and uh, those that are here physically and those that are here virtually, as well as our uh, sponsor, Morphosis, and uh, the organizers of the meeting, Peer Review, and uh, uh, Penn State University for, for, for providing the uh, continuing medical education, as well as to my colleagues for giving this great backgrounds to make these cases very easy to consider. A lot of what I say will relate to investigational agents and off-label uses. I kind of live in an off-label universe. Uh, I'm going to talk about targeting CD19 and CD20 antigens uh, in the treatment of malignancies, as you've, as you've heard. Th these are some issues that, that I think we all need to consider when we're talking about targeting these uh, tumor antigens. And I'm not going to answer any of these questions. I'm just going to prevent a few cases. But these are the kinds of things that should go through your mind as you're thinking about combinations or you're designing studies or you're thinking about the next best way to use these uh, agents. And I'll show you in the cases that I'm going to discuss how I've done this in my clinic. Uh, you, you need to think about antigen expression by the tumor cells. And if they are positive, how much antigen is enough? You know, in the lab, you can get responses in 
uh, in cells with just double-digit antigens. Um, but in vivo, it, it may be different. Uh, if, uh, it, and if you, what if somebody's negative by flow cytometry because there's blocking, is immunohistochemistry a better way of going? Uh, because you can see the stain for the internal domain in the case of CD20, for example. So you've got to think about how much antigens there, what technique you're using, and, and uh, indeed uh, uh, clinicians are limited by the techniques shown here. Then the mode of targeting is probably important. For example, you know how many uh, uh, antigenic sites are required for activity for CAR T cells versus bispecifics versus antibody-dependent drug conjugate approaches. So you got to think about antigen density, the mode of targeting, um, um, and how you're uh, quantitating the targets. Then the next important thing is the impact of targeting on the subsequent expression of that same antigen if you're going to target it, for example, uh, using two different approaches. For example, you're targeting with a CD19 antibody and then a CD19-directed CAR. Can you do that? You know, um, uh, will sequential targeting impair subsequent therapy? You know, uh, will it enhance it? And there's data uh, both ways, and it probably relates to timing. Um, and does the type of malignant uh, B cell or the pretreatment antigenic heterogeneity within a tumor uh, um, it, with regard to its antigen expression uh, impact uh, uh, your ability to... Um, have successful uh, sequential targeting. So these are the kinds of things to think about, and uh, I'm ha we're happy to discuss. Now, um, you've heard uh, a lot about these in the preceding two talks. We have these are the new the new tools, the new the new uh, toys. Uh, we have FC enhanced antibodies that use the whole immunoglobulin structure, uh, so it, these have a long half life of weeks, um, and uh, uh, we have a benetuzumab, uh, which is uh, bivalent and monospecific for CD20, tapacitumab, which is also binds to uh, CD19 molecules, um, and that was, that's the most recent approval, along with uh, lenalidomide. The bispecific antibodies, we've had since 2014 blenitumumab for ALL. Uh, that's a, a CD19-directed uh, uh, bispecific antibody. It's bivalent because it binds two different antigens, CD19 and CD3. Um, uh, and uh, uh, it does have activity in lymphoma, although I should mention it's not approved for lymphoma. Uh, mosinotuzumab, which you've heard about, uh, is bivalent. It binds to CD20 and CD3, and uh, that's, that's the most recently approved bispecific in, in the EU, uh, where it's approved for lapsed refractory follicular lymphoma, and the, I think the PDUFA date is uh, the 29th of this month in the U.S., and then, of course, we have the chimeric antigen receptor-modified T cells, which are basically your single antibody-derived single-chain variable fragment that is joined to a chimeric receptor with an intracellular signaling portion. And these are monovalent 19-directed uh, um, um, cells. The way to th I think about them is uh, there's kind of an antibody-based therapy that's packing a T cell as the payload uh, um, because it's a single-chain variable fragment derived from an antibody uh, to CD19 uh, that is the um, a binding uh, agent for these cells. And T-cygenic leucal and axicaptogene still leucal were approved in uh, 2017, so it's already getting to be old news. And uh, more recently, lisicaptogene marileucal uh, has been approved. All three of these target CD19. Okay, so 
How much antigen is enough? That's the first question that I said you need to consider. Well, I was surprised by this. Uh, if you look at the top panel, we, when we did the registrational trial for Tisagen Leclusal, which is a CD19-directed uh, form BB-co-stimulated CAR T-cell, uh, we looked at patients using immunostochemistry and then optical imaging. And basically, if you look at the response rates, they're about the same whether you were negative for uh, CD19 or positive for CD19. So clearly, immunohistochemistry may not, you have to have some antigen for these things to work, right? So uh, maybe immunohistochemistry is not uh, the best or sensitive enough technique to, to inform us. Yet frequently, that's what we clinicians uh, rely on. Um, then uh, with regard to bispecifics, um, uh, this was much less of a surprise, is that uh, patients on the trials that were discussed uh, earlier who had uh, essentially absent or, or uh, undetectable uh, CD20 expression by immunohistochemistry did not respond to mosonituzumab, okay? So uh, unlike what we saw with CAR-T, so maybe you need more antigen. I don't know the answer to any of these questions, but these are the kind of things to think about. If you look to the right at, the, at those dot uh, plots, box plots, what you'll see is that all the, that below the 5% cutoff, they're the ones that are um, negative for CD20. There's no responses because the red is progressive disease. So you, you've, you've got at least a CD antigen by immunostochemistry to respond to mosinituzumab. You don't have to CD9, see CD19 uh, by immunohistochemistry anyway uh, to respond to a car. What does that mean? Maybe somebody can tell me afterwards. Um, and this is just food for thought, you know, um, thinking about using antibodies sequentially or simultaneously, you know, it's all about timing. Uh, how are you blocking things? Well, we've known for a long time that all three of the clinically available CD, CD20 antibodies, that is rituximab, um, um, uh, the uh, obinutuzumab, um, and even uh, uh, ofatumumab, uh, they'll all block each other, even though the epitopes on CD20 are different. Well, how is that? They're binding different, well, antibodies are giant. So just to give you an idea, this is, I drew this to scale. Um, the, the, uh, what you see in the orange in the middle is this extracellular domain of, of CD19. And I'm showing you the, uh, an FAB binding to it. So you get in a sense of how big these antibodies are. That's just the FAB. Imagine if you have a giant antibody that's bound, what's gonna happen you know, um, um, to other antibodies at the same time. Could they block? Well, it probably, there will be probably some steric hindrance, but um, that is, may not even be related to epitope overlap because there's not epitope overlap at the three, 20, C, three CD20s I mentioned, but they still hinder each other. But it also has to do with binding affinity. If you've got an antibody that binds really tightly, it'll hold on and block the, the next antibody. Uh, whereas if you're treating with a weakly uh, um, avid uh, antibody, uh, then uh, eventually a more highly avid antibody will displace that one. So, so it's very complicated, what I'm trying to say. And you need clinical trials and lab based on laboratory studies to determine the optimal sequencing and how to use these agents. And that's really the whole point of all this. So, so uh, we have a lot to learn, although I'm impressed with the results we're already seeing. So let's move on to the cases, okay? Um, these are all from uh, my practice. So this is a 51-year-old uh, woman who was referred for primary refractory mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma in November of 2019. 
So this is her history. She started with a cough early that year. Uh, later, she ended up in a local emergency room where she was quite sick, hypotensive, and uh, appearing ill. A chest CT showed a very large 10 by 8 centimeter mediastinal mass. Echocardiogram showed that she had uh, essentially cardiac uh, uh, pericardial fusion with a cardiac tamponade. And she was admitted to a local hospital in Delaware, was uh, uh, underwent a VATS procedure for diagnosis, and they created a a window, pericardial window. The biopsy was consistent with prior mediastinal large B-cell lymphoma. The antigens are shown below under pathology studies. And, you know, she had PEs, post-op, stormy course. And then, of course, uh, they actually gave her an emergent cycle of RCHOP before even complete baseline diagnostic imaging uh, was done. And uh, this is the lower right is her uh, PET-CT scan that was done after a cycle of CHOP. So you can see even after that one cycle, she had a lot of disease. It's all super diaphragmatic, okay? It's just uh, mediastinal, but bulky and uh, causing vascular issues. There was no rearrangements of MIC or BCL2 or BCL6 using uh, in, uh, in situ uh, hybridization with MIC uh, IGH uh, uh, probe, fusion probes and probes for the other um, um, genes. Uh, LDH was up, other laboratory studies were really not very remarkable. And these are the mutations that were seen. So uh, uh, interesting beta-2 microglobulins frequently lost uh, makes the tumor kind of invisible to the immune system, which is nice about our, our T cells. We don't need MHC to, uh, to get T cells to uh, react against the tumor. Anyway, um, um, so this is her treatment history. Um, she had RCHOP times one. They switched her to dose-adjusted REPOX. She had five cycles. I don't know why all five, because she had progressive disease. They gave her uh, uh, rice, and she had a partial response to that and uh, was evaluated for a study uh, uh, at Penn at that time. And uh, uh, we did leukophoresis and actually treated her with pembrolizumab without uh, much change. Um, and then she went on to CAR T cells, which was the plan. We gave her radiation uh, to the mediastinal mass followed by bendamustine lymphodepletion and a, a C19-directed CAR T-cell, and she had a CR. And these are the scans after one cycle of RCHOP on the top right. <clears throat> Bottom right is to prove to you that she was FDG negative, had a complete metabolic response. So we were all happy for about two months. Um, it, you know, uh, two months after her CAR T-cells, she showed up in the emergency room with gross hematuria and a bump in her creatinine, which had been previously uh, normal. So uh, radiologic imaging, and this includes an MR urogram, which is shown on the below right. She had bilaterally enlarged lobulated kidneys consistent with involvement by lymphoma. Not, uh, not a pretty picture. Um, she had no evidence of lymphoma at any other sites other than her kidneys. So this is two months after getting CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy, and the question is, can you use uh, the C19 antigen again as a target, or should you, uh, or would you? And, uh, or do you need additional treatment to answer that question? Uh, and I'd be very interested in the panelists to answer this if they're listening. You can, you can approach them and, and give them uh, sequential CD19 uh, targeting drugs. We've done that. With Lonka, we've done that with Tafalen. I think you probably could have. Uh, and Greg's shaking his head, yeah. so you must be uh, right. I, I also agree. Uh, in Lonka, I believe the testing for C19 is was required, right? In the yes. study. Yeah. So that probably is the additional information we need, right? A biopsy. 
if anybody, the audience, you're welcome to weigh in. Um, okay. So anyway, uh, uh, so what did we do? Okay. Um, so um, we did biopsy her kidneys. I, I always like doing sequential biopsies in patients that fail um, immunotherapies uh, to see what's going on and what's logical, what's not logical, even though I discussed earlier the limitations of flow cytometry, you know, that can be blocked by uh, antibodies that bind to the surface when you and block the label to antibody or uh, immunohistochemistry, which is insensitive. Um, but I do it nevertheless. And she did have CD19 still expressed by immunohistochemistry. So now blinitumumab is not approved in the United States for lymphoma, but we know from the German studies that uh, it works. It can work and probably should have been developed many years ago. Uh, it was approved for ALL in 2014, and, and uh, we did prevail upon the sponsors to do a lymphoma but development, but never happened. Anyway, um, I had, she was not eligible for any of our studies at the time. They were full. I was into doing a lot of bispecific stuff at that time. She wasn't eligible, but I knew that I was getting the best responses in CAR T-cell failures with a bispecific. Figured I'll do blinitumumab, which is 19-directed. So what I'm doing now is I'm giving a C19-directed bispecific after a failing a C19-directed CAR T-cell therapy. And uh, um, sure enough, she went into complete remission. Very gratifying. And tolerated therapy really well. Unfortunately, you know, we gave her two cycles, but she began to become really pancytopenic, and the story does not have a happy ending. Um, the bone marrow showed she developed second, she had secondary AML, presumably from one of the non-immunotherapies that she had as part of her treatment. So we were working her up for an aloe, but then she got COVID, succumbed to that. So uh, that was case one, showing that the point there being you, you can target CD19, at least in this one case, uh, again, two months after progression following a CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy. And I think that fits with some of the data Paula was showing us uh, um, in, in, in the biopsy she showed us as well. Here's another case. Uh, um, this is a case of, of uh, follicular lymphoma after CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy. I think I uh, need to go back. Uh, this is the history. So uh, this 58-year-old woman was referred after uh, uh, multiple therapies, as shown on the slide. Um, this is kind of a, a long history, but uh, basically presented with very bulky adenopathy and skin nodules and biopsy showed what looked like a low-grade follicular lymphoma, but it was uh, fairly proliferative and, and bulky when I saw her. Anyway, these are her list of therapies, which all seem reasonable. She even had an autotransplant first-line therapy, which only lasted for five months. And uh, CAR T-cells, though, uh, which uh, she was on one of our early uh, studies uh, of CAR T-cells, did achieve a CR, and it, it lasted for a little over two years. Then, of course, uh, when she progressed, she went to another study, which didn't work, and basically nothing uh, else worked. So what would people do in this case? Colleagues and audience. And no transform yet? Uh, no. no transformation. No transformation. But uh, um, she continued to express, uh, you know, a C19, C20 on her tumor cells. So basically... Yeah, biopsy, always biopsy, that's the additional information. I don't know that, I just showed you, at least with CAR-T and T-cytogenic the biopsy didn't matter, but I still do it. Okay. Um, in any event, uh, I put her on the Mosonituzumab study. She was part of the study that was 
uh, discussed earlier. And uh, so uh, um, CD19-directed car failure, we gave her a CD20-directed therapy. She had CD20 on there, and you saw the long list of chemotherapeutic agents and, and PI3 kinase inhibitors and rituximab that she had been re resistant to, so it made sense to me. Um, in any event, uh, uh, she did have a complete response, and at the time I made this slide about six months ago, she was 39 months in CR, and she's actually still in CR, uh, seen about two weeks ago in the clinic. And this is the baseline uh, um, PET-CT scan prior to mosinituzumab when she progressed after CAR, and this is after three cycles of mosin, and she remains in, in remission. And she, had a little, she had some expansion of her CAR T cells, as you can see the transgene levels here, in response to the bispecific, because your T cells, when they engage tumor, actually not only kill tumor, they proliferate as well. And so, uh, um, not surprisingly, some of the CAR cells did. It's not required to see an elevation in these post-CAR patients for response, but you, not, it's not uncommon to see some increase. Um, now, this is a patient who had a CD20-directed bispecific antibody on the same famous study that was uh, discussed uh, by Paulo. This was a 31-year-old man. He was referred in March of 2019. Again, follicular lymphoma. I was at a meeting last night where I was hearing that follicular lymphoma is not bad. It's not a problem. Uh, it's not a problem when it's not, but there are a subset of patients that are really problematic, and this young man was one of them. Um, his disease, you could see it grow. Um, even though the biopsy showed, um, and these were representative good whole node lymph node biopsies, showed grade one, two follicular lymphoma. So grade's not everything. Stage four disease with marrow involvement. He had some baseline bad mutations, including a P53 mutation on his next-gen sequencing. So uh, probably explains why he didn't do well with chemotherapy-based uh, uh, treatments, because he's got a, a P53 deletion. Anyway, um, he was treated with RCHOP and maintenance and, and uh, RDHAP. They tried, we're going to try to do a transplant, and, and, but he was just basically uh, partial response and then growing. And when, when he uh, got in to see me in March, he, was, he had quite, quite a, a lot of uh, disease, and we needed to treat him quickly and, and needed a good bridge and, and uh, uh, if we were going to do CAR. And, and I couldn't think of much, so I said, well, We'll put you on study because I could take this off the shelf and get you treated in two weeks. And uh, uh, we uh, put him on the Mosin study that was discussed earlier. And he had a really nice response all over, except he had some residual nodes in his neck. We continued. But then after cycle four, uh, the, the disease in his neck began to uh, uh, grow. So what would you do next? And uh, what additional information would you need? Um, well, you know, we're only talking about 19 and 20, and we have a limited number of agents. So chemo, he's got a 53 mutation, not going to be uh, um, a great idea. So what did, I always, additional information, I always biopsy these people. I don't know, you know, and I did. And this actually will show you uh, uh, why I do the biopsies. If you look at the top, so I went to CD19, I gave him T-cytogenic leucal, uh, C19-directed CAR T-cell therapy. Now, if, once you look at the pre-Mosun biopsy material on the top. Uh, and what you could see on, by both flow cytometry and then immunohistochemistry uh, is that this patient had CD19 and CD20 uh, expression in his, uh, on his tumor cells. And the immunohistochemistry shows how strongly these cells stain for CD20, which is the, the golden brown 
uh, immunohistochemistry. By that, by the way, was this PET scan uh, prior to getting CAR T, uh, uh, or prior to getting mosinutuzumab, the, the top one. So like I said, he had rapidly growing disease. Um, after four cycles of mosinutuzumab, I told you everything looked like it went away on exam, except the neck, and then the neck started growing, and so we scanned him. And uh, this, the PET scan there, the lower uh, PET scan, you could see there's a, more disease in the neck than prior to Mosin, but the rest of his body's in complete remission. So what I do, what I do, I biopsied him. And what's interesting is you could see that, that uh, uh, on the L26 stain, the CD20 stain, he's completely negative. So he lost CD20. And we now know that when these patients with relapsed refractory uh, lymphomas come to you, and this is uh, from the... Um, a study that was, was recently published, 5.5% um, of these patients are missing CD20 when they come to you. And we know from the, the um, study of Mosin and none, essentially none of those patients respond if they don't have the antigen. So, um, so yeah, I think a biopsy, if you're thinking of bispecific antibody, if these patients had prior CD20-directed therapy, I think is uh, pretty much recommended um, unless it's going to put a patient's life at risk or something. And then um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, below, as, as you can see here, uh, CD19 remained uh, um, expressed on these cells, although they lost CD20. Now, it's interesting. If you look right at the flow third square in the upper flow cytometry plot, there is a small population of CD20 negative cells on flow cytometry. There are those brown cells there. Okay, and the, the circled ones are the CD20 positive ones. So, so this was a heterogeneous tumor, you know, at the get-go. And what emerged were, were the clones that were uh, uh, negative for uh, um, CD20. Anyway, we now had a CD19-directed agent. CAR T cells gave it to him, and uh, he went into CR. Uh, and uh, 34 months ago, uh, 44, 34 months still in remission, now that was about six months ago. He's still in remission. It's a very gratifying uh, case. So, so we have all these new tools, and uh, um, I hope that uh, uh, these cases were provocative. Thank you so much for this very fun uh, and uh, really a practical presentation. So uh, we have uh, a couple minutes for uh, questions and answers, and I would like to ask some of those questions which came because they're actually very interesting. And uh, Paul, I will start from you. Any data on activity of LONCA after Tafalen? Um, I don't think that there's data out on Tafalen. I mean, I think there's data on LONCA post CD19 targeting drug. I think it's just you just don't see a targeting CAR T's. I would expect that if you have CD19 positive um, disease, you would. There's, we're presenting an abstract this year on how it's like. CAR-Ts not dependent on the level of amount or the amount of uh, uh, CD19 expression, in part because of how it does its work, right? It doesn't really need to have a whole lot of antigen density. So I would expect that, yes. Yeah. And I think some of the real-world uh, data which is being acquired about the sequencing of therapy could help us here as well, because obviously we won't be able to randomize all those patients to different studies, but we will be able to acquire from yeah. the real world. So, um, yeah, yeah. Steve, question specifically to you. Uh, now, You've been a father of uh, CAR T-cells, and you've been a father of bispecifics, and now you have those two children. Um, I'm, how, a uh, great, I'm a favorite. believer in anything that works. <laughs> it doesn't matter the technique, you know. Uh, can you comment on how uh, cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicity manifest differently after CAR T-cells or bispecifics? 
Okay, so my most of my experience uh, has been with mosinatuzumab post-CAR T-cells, and there's no difference if they've had prior CAR T-cell therapy. Um, um, haven't seen it. And the one patient I showed you with uh, the um, uh, blinitumab, she did have neurotoxicity from the blina, which mm -hmm. she didn't have with the uh, with the CAR T cell. So, but no, I haven't noticed anything. Now, you know, and that's just with the um, um, mosinituzumab. And I suspect we'll see the same with epcaritumab. And glofitumab's different. Okay, that by itself actually is um, uh, fairly capable of provoking cytokine release syndrome. The data didn't look that as impressive as what I've actually seen, but. Um, uh, that, as you know, has two CD20 binding sites and, and one uh, CD3 binding site, which uh, uh, enhances its ability to sort of cluster and kill yeah. the, uh, the CD20. It's a, um, but I've not used that post-CAR, but I think there's probably, uh, uh, probably Martin Hutchings or has some information. And it's also because you give it with obinotuzumab before that can yeah. that decreases your rates of, of CRS. I think we're at least on our, our experience with bispecific is that is not as intense as what you see with CAR-Ts. It may be a little bit more protracted. And that gets back to the question about, um, it, that, I, that I said, things for consideration. They're giving these people a CD20-directed antibody, obinutuzumab, and I showed you how big those antibodies were, and, and they're using a, a CD20 times two, but a CD20 uh, with glofitumab, and yet glofitumab still works. And um, uh, so... Uh, so you, it is possible to target an antigen, I think, with more, although I, you could argue obinutuzumab saturating nonspecific binding sites or something, I don't know. But, but you, it is possible to use more than one approach to target an antigen, and if there's any message to take from this conference, I would like that to be the message. Yeah. Thank you. Paula, what's the experience with bispecific and double and triple hit lymphoma? Um, I do a Trying to remember the data. I think that if they were included, the activity is comparable. Uh, I don't think there's any significant differences. Patients are always high risk. Uh, there's certainly responses. I think if you look at the subgroups of the, the reported studies, it's, they're sensitive to it. I don't think that a particularly more resistant uh, it, group of them. It's interesting. Yeah, there's really not uh, much, much difference. Yeah. Double. So many of the things we consider to be awful prognostically, TP53 deletion, um, double, triple hit. That's if you're using, Chemo. you know, chemotherapy, okay? And it's not prognostic when it comes to these external targets or immunotherapy. You know, the T cells don't care if there's a, you know, a, a P53 deletion. They're, you know, they're going to perforate that membrane and cause light, you know, cause, uh, actually cause uh, uh, um, um, uh, apoptosis. So, uh, um, yeah, it, it, but the response rates look about look about the the same regardless. You know, we have a list of other questions which I would encourage audience to ask uh, directly because we're running out of time. The last one I, I would address here is a very short one: Is there a rationale for maintenance therapy after chemotherapy with um, uh, TAFA, LEN, or by specific antibody? Um, I think uh, Dr. Tribbamol, the PI of the lenalidomide maintenance study after chemotherapy, was here in the audience uh, earlier. I'm not sure if she's still here, but um, I, you know, in the development process with, in a PET era, uh, pets can, uh, PET patients who are negative by PET at the end of therapy typically do very well. 
Uh, so although there could be some maintenance uh, role, I think that some, the study would have to be very large uh, to actually see a significant benefit of the maintenance therapy in this setting. And several years ago, a group of experts wrote the paper Beyond Archop, and the consensus was that uh, maybe the maintenance strategies are not necessarily um, as attractive. Um, although in high-risk patients, maybe double hit and others, uh, this would be a, a more promising strategy if you can select those uh, high-risk patients. And I think uh, we'll stop here. And again, thanks so much for your attention and uh, joining us uh, this early morning uh, for breakfast and this uh, meeting. So uh, thank you very much. And I would like to thank our panelists. Sure. Thank you. This activity is certified by Penn State College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash ENP860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Insight Corporation and Morphosis U.S. Incorporated.